Welcome to the third episode of Bible Schooled Guys. We're back at it again. As always, I just wanted to take a moment and thank you so much for listening. You know, there are so many other really awesome podcasts and Bible teachings and YouTube videos and sermons and Facebook lives and just all the amazing content that's out there. So, you know, there's just so much of it. So the fact that you would take the time to listen to little old me, I really, really, really appreciate it. And I want to tell you, I put some work into this one, all right? It's a lot of information, and you may end up having to listen to it once or twice or even three times to grasp uh, the scope of what I'm saying. And even at that, I'm just scratching the surface on this content. Trust me. Um, But it's going to be worth it. I'm really excited about this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So grab a coffee or a tea, have a cookie, or don't have a cookie. I don't care. But sit back. Let's get into the word. Now, I thought it would be kind of fun to tackle the opening of Mark's gospel, looking at chapter 1, verse 1. Yep, you heard correct. We are just going to hang out there at the first verse for the whole episode. Now, I chose this verse because it contains a term that we all know, but I believe many of us are not aware of its history. And being aware of its history will lead us to a deeper meaning. Now, the term is gospel, one of the most fundamental words in our Christian faith. So let's read Mark 1.1, just to have it in our heads as we move forward here. Out of the English Standard Version, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you might be thinking, I know what the gospel means. It means good news. Well, Yes, it absolutely does. But even though that summation or that definition isn't wrong, it lacks the emotion and the nuance of history that uh, will truly bring its meaning to light, I believe. Remember, when it comes to biblical languages, one scholar says it this way, and I think it's uh, absolutely perfect way to say it. When it comes to biblical languages, it's not just a different word, it's a different world. Remember, when it comes to biblical languages, I'm saying it again, it's not just a different word, it's a different world. And that is something we need to consider. Like Harper Lee said, we need to consider the world that this is coming from. Now, again, just like the last two episodes, This episode, I believe, is going to show how looking at the historical and cultural backgrounds of the Bible will really expand and open up and bring a level of depth that may not be obvious at the surface level. Okay, so let me give you some background for the book of Mark. This is going to be read from the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. Um, Now, a lot of the Bible commentaries that are free online are really old and, frankly, pretty outdated. If they were clothes in a closet, the clothes would be musty, full of mothballs, dust all over them. Like, they're old. Okay, they've been there for a while. Not that they're bad, they're just old. Uh, But this one's free online. It's pretty good if you're looking for a commentary that's more current than, say, Matthew Henry. Like I said, not that Matthew Henry is bad, but 
I mean, it's a few hundred years old by now. What are you going to do? But anyway, like I said, this is coming from the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. And I recommend if you just want a good commentary, that's pretty decent. That's free. Good one. Okay, so reading from the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, Strong Church Tradition says that the Apostle Peter is the main source of Mark's gospel. One indication of Peter's influence is that Peter speaks very affectionately of Mark, referring to him as Mark my son in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 13. That's 1 Peter 5.13. He also writes that Mark was with him. Mark, who is also called John Mark in passages like Acts 12.25, was a failure in ministry as pictured in the book of Acts with Paul in chapter 15. His relationship, however, with Paul was restored in the end. You can see that in 2 Timothy 4.11. Like Mark, Peter also knew what it was like to be a failure in following Jesus after having denied him three times. Yet he too was restored in the end. Another indication of Peter's influence is the vivid eyewitness detail of the gospel. Verses like uh, 639, 5.13, 3.5, and 34 describe uh, vivid details that probably came from Peter's discourses with Mark, such as green grass, 2,000 hogs, and looking roundabout. Many believe Mark to be the first of the four gospels written and that it was written in Rome. Make a note of that. Most scholars agree that the Gospel of Mark was the first of the four written, though some believe that Matthew was perhaps first. Um, So one very strong indication that Mark wrote his Gospel for the Roman mind is that he uses more Latin words, phrases, and idioms than in any other Gospel. Okay, done reading the commentary. That's just a quick intro to Mark for our purposes here. So this is me talking again. Commentary is done. But I want to emphasize to you the fact that Mark's audience was Roman. Just keep that in the back of your head for a second. Now let's get into the weeds a little bit and look at the word gospel. Remember Mark 1.1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel here is the Greek word evangelion. Now, if you're an anime fan like me, you might be nerding out a little bit because that word Evangelion, it's in the name of one of, in my opinion, in a lot of people's opinions, the greatest animes of all time, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Very good. I highly recommend it if you're into the animes. But if you're not into the animes, you don't care about anything that I'm saying right now. So let's move on. Um, You might have also guessed And you're correct if you did, that Evangelion is related to words we're very familiar with, like angel, evangelism, evangelical, so on and so forth. Now, in our world, there's really only one association with the word gospel, or Evangelion, and it's the Christian one. But in Mark's world, his audience would have had other associations brought to mind when they read his opening statement. Because gospel, or evangelion, actually predates not just the written accounts of Jesus' life, but it predates Jesus' life as a man on earth. Now, Jesus' first words in Mark are in verse 15, 
and it will give us a clue as to what the definition of gospel is. Now, side note, for the rest of the podcast, I'll probably be using the English and Greek words interchangeably. So I might say gospel here and evangelion there, but I'm referring to the same thing, just so you know. But in Mark 1.15, again, these are the first recorded words of Jesus. This is going to be after John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus comes into Galilee. Now, the scripture says in verse 14 that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. And then verse 15, the actual words Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the definition of gospel. This is what the gospel is. The coming of the kingdom of God. That is the good news. That is the Evangelion. The kingdom is come and the kingdom is here. Now with this definition, there are two antecedents for the way Mark uses the word gospel in his opening statement. There are two parallel paths, so to speak, that when both taken, lead us to a fuller context and understanding of what the gospel is beyond the simple definition of just good news. Remember how we established earlier that Mark was writing to a Roman audience? Well, even though he was writing to a Roman world, he was still writing from a Jewish tradition. And these are the two contexts we must look at to inform Mark the Jewish background, including the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and the historical cultural setting of the Roman world and the Roman Empire. These are the two parallel paths of context that will show us uh, announcements of good news tied to a kingdom or to the rule of a king. Now, real quick, just to give you a source of what I'm about to cover, A lot of this information I've gotten from an article written by an academic named Janine Brown, no relation, uh, but the article is titled Theology Behind Evangelion, originally published in Evangelicals Magazine and can be found on the National Association of Evangelicals website, which is where I found it. Also a book called The Son of God in the Roman World, Divine Sonship in its Social and Political Context by Michael Peppard. Let me give you the title one more time. The Son of God in the Roman World, Divine Sonship in its Social and Political Context by Michael Peppard. And that book is a real deep dive, let me tell you. And it goes way beyond the scope of what I'm covering here today. But Pepper's work is absolutely fascinating to me. And it does assume... Uh, that you have at least some type of background in theological training as a reader, but it's, like I said, it's fascinating and it's really good if you want to deep dive into more of this material. Um, I, I recommend checking it out if you want to do that. So those are the sources. Let's dive in. Roughly 700 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, the prophet Isaiah lived and had his ministry. In chapter 52 of Isaiah, the prophet announces some good news. This is Isaiah 52, 7, and it might sound familiar because Paul quotes this in Romans 10, 16. It reads, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, 
who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, good news is conveyed by the Greek verb evangelizo, which is rated to evangelion. Let me quote directly from Janine's, uh, Janine Brown's article here. She says, Isaiah has a gospel. It is the news of the reality of God's powerful return to Zion to restore Israel. Isaiah sums up this good news as, Here is your God, and your God reigns. And that's 40, Isaiah chapter 49 and Isaiah 52, 7. Isaiah looks ahead to the establishment of God's kingdom in this world. As Jesus comes proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom as the good news, Jewish people would have, ex- would have expected the arrival of the great transformation anticipated in the wake of God's kingdom. End quote. Uh, now let me read the passage in Romans 10 where Paul quotes Isaiah 52, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And that quote there is from Isaiah 53. Verse 17, Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Think about this. In Isaiah 52, the one with beautiful feet is the one who brings good news, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In Romans 10, Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Of course, most of us know that this word there for word in Romans 10, 17 is rhema, which means spoken word in the Greek. So we hear through the rhema or the spoken word of Christ. Well, literally, the rhema or the spoken word of Christ, according to Mark 1, 15, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the rhema. Isaiah looked ahead and Paul looked back, but they were looking at the same thing. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom and the reign of God in the earth. Remember, this good news has been hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. Isaiah made his prophetic announcement of good news when the nation of Israel was in exile with no apparent hope of being restored to their homeland. And not only that, when Jesus arrives and the Jews are actually back in their homeland, they're under Roman occupation, so it's not even really theirs. And on top of both of those things, in the time between Isaiah and Jesus, the Jewish people, they went through some pretty tough things. They went through some pretty trying times. So it had not been all, you know daffodils for the Jewish people, they could have used some good news. The gospel, the message that God's kingdom was here, would have been very, very good news indeed. And even though it came in a way the Jewish people didn't expect or understand, 
And even though it eventually became a stumbling block to many, the gospel writers make a direct connection between the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the arrival of God's kingdom in the earth. Now that is just the briefest of brief looks at the Jewish context of gospel. There are, of course, many more messianic prophecies and passages concerning the kingdom and the rule and the reign of God as king. And I don't have time to look at all of it, but it would be a great, great study for you if that's something you're interested in. Now, the rest of this time, we're going to look at the Roman context of the word gospel or evangelion. And let me read Mark 1.1 again, just so it's fresh in our minds. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, of course, Christ or Messiah would have a clear meaning for Jews reading that, and so would Son of God, because uh, the Davidic kings in the Old Testament, so all the kings of Israel that were from the line of David, um, they were also called the Son of God, and that is clear messianic connection there. But remember, Mark is writing for a Roman audience. And what would really have raised a Roman eyebrow, other than the use of the word gospel, is the term son of God. Now, it's been well documented that during Roman times, the emperor was regarded as a god king. The deification of heads of state was very common in the ancient world, and Rome was no exception. And the emperor was worshipped as a god on the earth. Now, the first Roman figure to be deified was Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar was not an emperor per se, but he was, you know, he was a great general and statesman, and he was uh, what they called the dictator, but he was not the emperor. The first emperor would be Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, a.k.a. Augustus. However, Julius Caesar, and you could probably, you, you know this from history probably, but, um, you know, I just said he was dictator. So that was kind of like precursor to emperor. He, Julius Caesar was the first to assume a firm grip of the Roman government. And he was the key figure in the events that led to the ultimate downfall of the Republic and the Senate and the rise of the empire and the emperor. Now, Julius Caesar's deification came posthumously after he was assassinated uh, by a group of senators who didn't like the fact that he was taking all their power away, et tu brute, as Shakespeare famously wrote. Um, so Julius Caesar's deification came after that. He was given the title Divis Julius, Latin for the divine or the deified Julius. Now, his adopted son, a.k.a. Caesar Augustus, would go on to be the first Roman emperor. And he took the title Divi Filius, meaning son of God. And this title was then given to some of Augustus, uh, Augustus's successors, including Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, also Nero. So, the Roman emperor had the title Son of God. Let me read to you an inscription dating back to the 6th century BC 
that was found in uh, Prain, which was an ancient Greek city in modern-day Turkey, so Asia Minor back then. It was an ancient Greek city that came under Roman control. Now, again, just to give you a source for this, I am uh, citing a paper called Mark's Insipit and the Praying Calendar Inscription from Jewish Gospel to Greco-Roman Gospel, written by a scholar named Craig Evans. So uh, this description reads, um, originally it was in Greek, obviously, so this is the English translation. It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia, in the opinion of the high priest, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, uh, uh, excuse me, he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Okay, did you catch that? Right there at the end. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, or the good news, or the Evangelion, or the gospel. This inscription was called a gospel. It was a gospel of Caesar. And it refers to what we call the Pax Romana, the age of Roman peace, which came about right before and lasted into the time of Jesus. Think about this. Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a direct challenge to the religious and political power structure of the empire. By casting him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Mark is connecting Jesus to the prophetic announcements made by the prophets of old, that God is breaking into this world and setting up his kingdom and making all things right through his rule. But not only that, he also casts Jesus as a sort of counter-emperor to Caesar. Mark says that Jesus, not Caesar, is the true divine king, the true divine son of God. And it is the rule of Christ that will bring about true peace, not a false peace, which is enforced through the brutality and ruthlessness of the Roman Empire. This is subversive language. By using the terms gospel and son of God, Mark is speaking truth to power, so to speak. He's deliberately subverting the propaganda of the empire and the cult of Caesar with the message of Jesus. Now, let me quote from Janine Brown again. She writes, In our contemporary context of a separation of church and state, it can be easy to assign this claim for Caesar to the political realm and to identify Jesus' kingdom announcement as spiritual. Yet no person in that era would have conceived of such a separation. End quote. Of course, we know the fullness of this gospel. 
and of the kingdom will be realized at the eschaton, at the end, at the second coming of Christ to the earth. Yet, at the same time as Christians in the here and now, in this earth, we are still called to live in the reality of Jesus as our Lord and our King. We are his ambassadors on the earth, Paul says. And Paul also talks about how we as the church are the body of Christ. And because of Jesus, we can reign in life. And as we reign in life, we enforce the reign of the kingdom on the earth. Now, this doesn't mean that we go try to overthrow our governments and set up theocracies, but it does mean that as citizens of heaven, citizens of Christ's kingdom, our allegiance is to him above all else. All of our other loyalties are secondary to Jesus. And because we are in Christ, we have become sons of God, children of God. And we can walk in the blessing and in the authority that comes with that title. And even though we are in the world, we are not of it. We are citizens of the kingdom. And as such, our job is to be preaching and proclaiming his gospel. King Jesus is the only one who truly brings salvation. He brings healing, health, and hope, and mercy, and justice, and true peace to this world. And in Jesus, all the prophetic promises of the Old Testament about God breaking in to this earth to set up his kingdom are fulfilled. And it is Jesus, not Caesar, who is the son of God. Jesus, not Caesar, is the God king. Caesar is dead, but Jesus is alive. This is the gospel. Thank you for listening.